George Gordon Byron once said, For truth is always strange, stranger than fiction. This is Save vs. Ranked. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we're talking about WTF board games. Right. Uh, WTF being the stranger sort of board games. Board games that are unusual in a way that makes them unique and crazy. Sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. So I want to address real quick, we took a month off. Last year we were able to power through the month of December. This year, uh, life kind of caught up with us. So sorry about the break in production. It really came out of nowhere uh, for us as well. So sorry about that. So one of the things I do want to talk about before we get into the games, though, is how much more difficult this list was to throw together than the RPGs list. Well, the thing about RPGs is that it's very easy to just come up with a strange concept for a game or just a strange dynamic for a game. You know, like we talked about Puppet World and how you're supposed to narrate the game as if you're telling a story and it has that 30-minute constraint on it. And we talked about Nobilis, which is a weird, crazy sort of game, and all it takes for a RPG to be weird is for it to do something weird or have a weird concept behind it. Board games have a much more difficult production cycle in most cases. They're not just something someone writes down on paper and ships out. It's something that you have to do production for. You have to have art, you have to have materials, and you have to put it all in a big box and ship it on out. So we have uh, a list of games here, and uh, along with each of the games, we're going to talk about games that are kind of like them, and we're also going to talk about why they are so WTF. So let's dive right in here. We have... Obviously. Okay. Pandemic Legacy Season 1. Now, Pandemic Legacy was not the first Legacy game. I believe the first Legacy game to be called such. There might have been a game that preceded this, but Risk Legacy was the first Legacy game that had the word Legacy stamped on it. And Legacy game, as I believe we mentioned several times before, is a game that has rules and changes to the game that persist between games. So you play your first game, changes happen, and then you play your second second game with those changes in place. And the the idea of legacy games was, it, it was invented by uh, Rob Davio. His idea behind it was to get people to play games more than once, to give you a reason to keep rediscovering a game you've played before. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, I look at my game shelf and a lot of times I can realize that I've only played some of the games on the shelf two or three times. Some of the games I might not even have played at all, but the number of games I've actually played ten times or more is fairly small. I mean, you know, there's a few that I just break out constantly, like Ticket to Ride, Catan, we've all played a ton of. Small World, I think I've almost hit the ten times. Seven Wonders, definitely played ten times. And there's some games that I really want to play more frequently. I'd really like to play Fog of Love more, really like to play uh, Potion Explosion more because that's cool. But for the most part, we don't hit that 10 game mark with a lot of games. So let's talk about Pandemic Legacy Season 1 and why it was so weird. Why it deserves this WTF marker. It really, it took a game, it took a fairly straightforward game, Pandemic, and turned it on its head. It added a narrative to pandemic. It added more pieces and parts 
and it gives you this reason to keep coming back. Pandemic is a really good game, but once you start mastering it, the game basically is the same over and over and over, and Pandemic Legacy just took it and went wild with it, and by the end of it, it's it's still Pandemic, but there's a lot of times you're sitting there going, I don't know, I mean, the best gamest move is to do this, but... I just want to save people. I want to help the people in... I want to help the people in Spain. We. I don't want people to die to this horrible outbreak. Right, and it's really cool that the narrative begins to build into the game in a way that makes you interested. But another thing that's big about it is this whole concept of adding and removing parts to and from the game. And a big part of that is we all have kind of an aversion to that. I know that my wife back absolutely hates when any part of a game is defaced whatsoever. So these sort of things really viscerally hit her and she's expressed that she could never play a legacy game for that purpose but to me it's really interesting to take this thing and make a lasting permanent change to it it feels almost wrong and in a sense pandemic legacy is kind of genre defining in that way i mean there was a time when every board game was defining a whole new genre of board games but pandemic legacy even though it's not the first legacy game is the first legacy game to reach wild levels of acclaim and to be one of, considered one of the best games in the decade and that's pretty incredible and that's what makes it the game that really pushes this concept home it's pretty awesome uh, another thing I do want to talk about uh, about Pandemic Legacy Season 1 is how it changes in between each game. It's not just a one-and-done surprise. I have a number of Escape the Room games, which the whole point of it is to open the box, go through it, and then you never play it again. Uh, some of them you go through and, yeah, you destroy the bits and pieces of the game, you write in the books, and then you don't play it again. But with the Legacy games, they want you to keep playing it. They want you to update the rules. They want you to add the stickers they want you to rename the pieces and parts and it makes it so the game is worth playing over and over the next game that we have to talk about is well vast it's an asymmetrical dungeon exploring game right i believe three to five players is that correct i do believe it's three to five players yeah. at the three player level it's basically a rock paper scissors game between an adventurer trying to slay a dragon a dragon trying to eat goblins and eventually escape from the cave and the goblins trying to kill the adventurer and that creates a dynamic where everybody is trying to deal with somebody else and every single group plays completely different from the others. And four and five level, you add the thief and eventually the cave itself, which is just trying to outpace everybody. But the way that it works is all of these play completely different. Uh, the time that I played, I got to play as the goblins and you're managing these goblin tribes, trying to get them large enough that they're powerful enough to actually challenge and defeat the adventurer, but not that they fall to overpopulation where they start squabbling amongst themselves. Now, there's been a lot of asymmetrical board games. The reason that I, I picked this one for the list is because it really feels like everyone is playing a different game. Oh yeah, completely. Like, everybody has different rules, different dynamics. I mean, Steve Jackson's Ogre is one of the oldest asymmetrical games I can think of. I'm sure there are others that are older, but in Ogre, one person has a giant super tank, and the other player has all of these other smaller conventions 
conventional weapons trying to kill that super tank. And while both sides play completely different, there's unified dynamics between them. You're still shooting weapons, you're still moving your pieces, you're still doing all that. The difference is just the number of pieces. Vast is completely different, especially if you're playing as the cave and you don't even have a piece you're moving around on the board. No, you're just building the board. There was a game that came out uh, this past year called Root, which is an asymmetrical war game. You're playing in a forest as these different forest-dwelling creatures having this big war, and you're uh, establishing strongholds in areas, trying to subvert the more powerful enemies, trading amongst yourselves. And while that's an asymmetrical game, it's a lot easier to understand what you're trying to do and what everyone can do. In Vast, I played as a rogue, and my whole goal was to try and get a bunch of treasure from the cave, but if I died, it didn't matter. I would resurrect at the entrance to the cave. And it was so weird going, okay, I'm just going to run forward and ignore all the dangers. Whereas the paladin in the group was building up equipment, trying to get better weapons to be able to take on and attack this dragon. The dragon was trying to eat goblins to gain power, to level up the different powers, to use the different dragon breaths and whatnot, and then eventually get to the surface. As John said, he was trying to build up his tribes while not having them get uh, eaten or die to overpopulation. It was it was weird and different, and I can't really say that it was a great game, but it was so different and fun that it was a great experience, and even playing it again would be a new journey of discovery. Right. It's uh, it's just, it's so asymmetrical. Everyone's playing these completely different manners and everyone interacts with everyone else in these completely different ways. Like you said, the rogue's not worried about dying. If the paladin dies, it's over. That's a goblin victory. But I think I killed you like four times just incidentally, just because you were in the way or otherwise causing me trouble, things like that. But then like the dragon and all of that, everything is interacting with everything else in these different ways that make it just an interesting experience and really we should have focused more on defeating the dragon because the dragon ended up winning just by default because the dragon got powerful enough to escape and i was the only one really opposing the dragon the paladin was just focusing so much on becoming powerful enough to beat the dragon that you know i i was just trying to keep my goblins from being eaten to make the dragon more powerful and just ended up being this strange experience is what i'm trying to say the next game we have on the list is the grizzled yeah the grizzled i've never played this game what is the grizzled of uh, the Grizzled is a World War One game where every player represents a member of a squad, and because it's World War One, you're not trying to defeat Hitler and win the war or whatever. Because there's no Hitler to defeat; it's just a bunch of inbred nobles fighting each other for supremacy over Europe, and you're just stupid pawns in this fight. So your entire goal is to survive the war, and you do that. By trying to avoid the various pitfalls of the war, mustard gas, machine guns, dead of night, freezing winter, all these terrible things. And it's a game that features a no table talk rule, as many games tend to do, um, especially cooperative games. It's a fully cooperative game and everyone either wins together or loses together. And the only real exception to the no table talk rule is that there are these speeches you can make, which uh, take away a condition from a player. For instance, they might, you know, embolden them to overcome a phobia or whatever. But when you're making the speech, you have an opportunity. You're supposed to give it as a speech, but you have an opportunity to kind of slip 
slip in a hint to try to help your fellow players understand what's going on. You might say, for instance, uh, We will not be daunted by the machine guns of the enemy, though be, they be vast and numerous, to try to signal to the other players, I've got a handful of machine guns. Don't play out machine guns because I need to be able to get rid of them. Things like that so that you can actually like push your way through it. And it's interesting because no table talk as a dynamic is usually kind of an unpleasant thing. Oh yeah, when I was a child and I would sit in on my uh, parents' gaming uh, sessions, they would play card games, uh, a lot of things like Euchre or different poker variants. It would be it would be so boring to watch these adults playing this game, sitting around talking about the events of the day and barely paying attention to the game. No table talk is really just a way of disengaging you from the game. But a, a number of modern games, when they do no table talk, it's actually a way of hyper-focusing you on the game. Another game with a no table talk rule is The Mind. The whole game, you play it in silence. And it's really magical when you're sitting around staring at each other and then you play 32, 33, 35, 36, 40. And everyone goes, holy crap, how did we just succeed? Exactly. I, I remember we had an experience like that with the mind. I think it was, didn't we have 98, 99, 100 and we got it correct, even though like that's really like it's such a niche portion of the game that it's hard to anticipate that sort of thing. It was 94, 95, 96, 98, 99, 100. Yes! <laughs> That is glorious. And so the no table talk rule for that game and for the Grizzled really works out in a way that makes the game interesting and turns no table talk into an actual dynamic of the game that focuses you on the game more rather than less. So let's talk about another game where you have to focus on the game. Secret Hitler. Oh, we've talked about hidden role games before, but Secret Hitler is kind of a special hidden role game and really a WTF game in itself. One of my friends has said that he enjoys it even more than my favorite hidden role game, Avalon. He enjoys uh, Secret Hitler more because even if you lose, at the end of the day, you get to stand up, point at one of your friends and go, you're a fascist. You're a lying fascist. And possibly Hitler. And how often do you get to yell, you're Hitler, at one of your friends? No, it's Ho hopefully not very often. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I would imagine it's supposed to be a periodic thing. It seems to happen to me a lot, though. No, uh, so the the thing about Secret Hitler is another, another thing that was mentioned last time we played it was that these sort of hidden role games are really an opportunity to see how your friends lie. And it's interesting because when you're playing these hidden role games, you're not bluffing. Bluffing would be when you're taking an action and and then trying to make someone think that the action means something that it doesn't or that you're not actually taking that action, which is an interesting dynamic. When Secret Hitler, you're outright lying. You know you're a fascist. You know you're one of the bad guys, but you have to tell everyone, no, no, no. I'm a bleeding heart liberal just like the rest of you. Definitely not an evil fascist bent on taking over the world or anything. Uh, the last major game night we had, we actually played a bluffing game called Skull. And throughout it, there was a lot of times where you're, you're attempting to place down these, they're essentially drink coasters, and try and convince people that your pile is safe or that, or that what you're calling is actually real. And at no point are you truly lying. You, you might be stretching the truth, but everyone knows you've either placed down a skull or you haven't. In Secret Hitler, oh no, I, I had no choice. I had to play a fascist card. No, no you didn't. I gave you a liberal. Or, no, you gave me two fat. 
oh my goodness, you must be a fascist, when in reality they're a good guy and you're trying to throw them under the bus. Or the other way around. Either way, someone is lying. Not just bluffing, not just being deceptive or evasive, but someone is flat out telling a lie. It's an opportunity to see how your friends lie, which is really interesting. A lot of fun, and it's kind of cool to get to do that sort of thing in a controlled environment where no one's going to hurt anyone's feelings or lie about anything important. It's just a good, fun way to have a social experience you don't normally have, especially not as a positive social experience. So let's talk about kinetic games. A lot of people have had interactions with kinetic games like Jenga, where you're attempting to stack up this tower. The one I want to talk about, though, the one that gets under my skin is Flick'em Up. Why does Flick'em Up get under your skin? It actually always, it, it always seems really cool to me. Oh yeah, it's wonderfully cool. You're playing as cowboys, playing against another gang of cowboys, and you're shooting each other and trying to take cover behind these buildings. Yeah, and you do it all by flicking little... No, no, you don't. Specifically, you don't flick the pieces. You kind of give them this little uncontrolled tap. And what's the point? I mean, if... I really just want to flick a little piece of wood and have it go bouncing all around the room. What's wrong with that? Well, I mean, you know, that the reason is that if you flick it with the thumb and forefinger like you would normally flick something, that gives you actually a ton of control. Like, it, in, in like my experiments, trying it both ways, if you're just flicking it just by using your index finger and flicking your wrist, you have so much less control than you do in the uh, thumb and forefinger situation that it almost makes the game trivially easy when you're doing the thumb-forefinger flick so that's why you're doing that little flick like that and that makes it an interesting way to have to throw the little little disc this you gotta throw the little disc and and, well there's a power-up in the game that's a that's a rifle that you place your bullet inside of and it gives you essentially a, a little straight shot so you can aim your shots better right And that's bothersome. I mean, the whole point of it is to be a game of skill and dexterity and sometimes just outright stupid luck. And that's fine, but why call this Gangs of Cowboys game Flick'em Up if you can't flick the pieces? You know what other game lets you actually flick the pieces and actually does this so much better? Catacombs. Okay, tell me about Catacombs. In it, it's a two-player game. One player is controlling a group of adventurers Mm -hmm. going down to the fifth level of the dungeon and defeating the boss. And the other player is controlling monsters, right? The other player is controlling monsters. How did I know? And the board is a fairly standard board game board that you roll uh, that you fold out, but it has these little bits that you put underneath the board, and they stick up through to provide terrain and blocking terrain. And you put this little border around it in case you overflick. It hopefully stays in the area and doesn't go rolling under the couch. Okay, so you're allowed to do like the full thumb, forefinger, forceful super flick that like you know sends pieces flying all over. You totally are allowed to do that, and sometimes it's actually the best idea because you have such a small little piece and you're trying to take down a big dragon or trying to hopefully not get stuck inside the gelatinous cube which by the way is a cool little cube piece it's awesome but i i don't know like at, from a game perspective yeah flick em up is a more solid game but catacombs just has that that tactile oomph that i really like 
I guess I, I guess I do get that because you're right and flick them up. You're just kind of flicking your wrist to do it. But like I said, it does make it makes such a huge difference when you can actually like do the thumb forefinger thing. It is still cool that it's like a kinetic game. I, I actually really like kinetic games from a WTF game perspective, like Jenga even. Like it, who came up with this? Like you make this wooden tower, and I've seen some like pretty incredible Jenga players. Actually, I didn't know I didn't know until I looked up competitive Jenga just how ridiculous that stuff can actually get have you seen competitive jenga i've seen people be able to take out a, a whole row just that that last little block there and, and have make, the tower sh- drop straight down and make the tower drop straight down without falling apart and, and not even when the tower is like solid all the way up but like when there's still holes in like that tower all the way up they'll just flick it out and it just drops down and keeps going how do you it's incredible if we're talking about games where we're building up towers and piles of pieces i really like meeple circus it's a game where you're trying to assemble this circus of meeple and put on the best show you can and sometimes you have to try and carry an elephant on your back or go around riding on a horse or if you have the clown you have to try and knock him off the top of your uh, tower and out of your play area without knocking over other things and the whole idea is that yeah you're going to be knocking over things and it's gonna it's gonna fall to bits and you're gonna have a horrible time sometimes just going oh and it all falls apart but that's kind of the fun yeah the kinetic games are really cool in that sense and they and think that they are the most obvious entries in this WTF category of games you know there was that one with the lasers and the mirrors like that's weird unique and cool in its own way uh potion explosion is basically every connect three mobile game but done with marbles and little ramps i recently ordered a game off of kickstarter that the whole idea is that you're moving these magnets around to move a compass that is one of the game pieces to try and help guide one of the pieces around the game without going into the bad guys and that's really cool oh that does sound cool I don't know if it's any good. It's Kickstarter. hasn't arrived yet. Right, but right. I'm, um, I'm hoping. Hearts Hearts of Attraction. Have you played that one? I have not. It's, it's actually, it's another flicking game, actually. Uh, you, you have these little metal hearts that are magnetic. And because a heart is a weird short sort of shape, the magnets will connect in unusual ways and like kind of clack together and, and twist up. And you're flicking them into the group, trying to capture as many hearts as you possibly can. And if I remember the game correctly, it's been a while since I've played it. You're supposed to hold your captured hearts in one hand and you're supposed to like flick with the other hand until there's no more hearts left on the table. And it's like marbles where if you fail to actually get them to connect, then you just lose that heart. But then also if you accidentally make them go off the edge of the table, another player can catch them with a magnet that he has in his hand. And that counts as catching them too. So it it turns into a game with catch-up mechanics and all kinds of stuff going on for it that aren't readily obvious from just looking at the game. So it's a nerdy version of Beer Pong. Yeah, sure. I like that. That's that's a great description. I love it. Yeah, no. um, Hearts of Attraction. Shoot, I haven't played that in a while. I gotta get me a copy of that. our friend Thur has it, actually, and that's where I played it. I played it, uh, I want to say, four times as a pickup game at one of his game nights when everybody hadn't arrived yet. It's a really easy game to just throw down and pick back up, and he's got a good table for it with a nice felt top like uh, like your table, actually. So the next game that we're going to talk about is loved by so many people, and... Okay, okay so, so I'm going to talk about Terraforming Mars. As a game goes, it's pretty straightforward. You're trying to add pieces to this map of Mars 
to try and get all of these gauges up to their appropriate levels. You're trying to raise the temperature up by releasing methane gas into the air or uh, opening volcanic vents and the like. You're trying to import more water by either melting the ice caps or taking it off of one of the frozen moons or just bringing more water on to bring the water level of the planet up. And then you're uh, attempting to bring the oxygen level of the atmosphere up to be breathable. Now, I understand terraforming Mars has, like, some actual, like, real science behind it. Like, you're actually trying to push into the habitable range for all of these different factors. You know, get the right amount of carbon in the atmosphere, right amount of oxygen, right temperature, so that it can be human habitable, right? Yes, and as you go along, you can start developing these engines that let you play more advanced cards. You can start getting water that is uh, desalinized. Then you can introduce algae into it, which it has to be right temperature and a right oxygen level and a right amount of water to get algae. And then from there, you can start getting fish and whatnot. And from there, you can get predators that actually start making an environment. Uh, Likewise, once the soil levels are better, you can start planting trees. You can uh, start having ore refineries on the planet to start mining the planet. And you can set up these biomes and uh, biodomes, except without Pauly Shore. <laughs> and it's all this great stuff. And you're playing as these competitive corporations against each other, developing these interesting engines. Right. So it's it's partway between competitive and cooperative because everybody's trying to make the environment better and more capable, but they're all also trying to benefit their corporation. That sounds pretty cool. And then you get the weird bits, okay. like you crash a meteor into the planet or you crash your opponent's stocks or you have to get corporate investors to send another group of people up to Mars and it it feels like you're just throwing in these directly competitive, very angry parts to a game that's otherwise just you playing by yourself. And it it feels like it had so much potential and so many great bits to it that did not gel into a good cohesive whole. And so many people like this game, and I was excited about it. I picked it up at Gen Con the year it came out, and I've played it twice, and it's been sitting on my shelf since then. Bores me. Oh, that's disappointing. Well... On the one hand, that is disappointing, but on the other hand, I almost picked it up at that same Gen Con before you did, and I was like, well, if you're going to get it, I guess I'll just play it with you sometime. And if it's like that, I'm kind of glad that I did, but mm, sorry to hear that. It actually looked pretty cool in the demo, and it sounded like it had a lot going on for it, but it also sounded like it was one of those games where the competitive aspect was thrown in as kind of an afterthought to the cooperative portion, is that? So a while back, we were playing a number of games, and I believe... I believe you pointed out that there's really no reason that there's multiple people playing this. All of the things that I'm doing affect you, but in no way that I can guess or predict. And that's kind of what Terraforming Mars felt like. And then they went, wait, 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 you can throw a comet at your opponent's places. It's fine. There's totally parts where you're interacting. Yeah, what game? I don't remember what game that was, but yeah, there was that game where I was like, you know, it's it's kind of like nobody really knows what we're doing to each other, but we're definitely interacting. It's just the interaction doesn't feel real. A lot of cooperative games also suffer from the whole opt 
optimal plaything, uh, the big Mensa games, uh, Forbidden Desert and Forbidden Island, those are basically games that you could solo by yourself. You don't need other players to play them at all. And because they're 100% cooperative with no reason to ever default on cooperation, there's always an optimal choice and any player making a suboptimal choice can be called out by other players for making that mistake. So it kind of ruins the aspect of cooperation when there's no individual goals or individual purpose. You might as well play it solo. Eventually we'll get around to talking about Gloomhaven, and when we get around to talking about that game, that was actually one of the design decisions put into the game. If there's no reason to not cooperate, then cooperation is the default, and there's no reason to not do it. Anyway, so that looks like our whole... Li- oh, wait, no. I'm, not, I'm, I'm unfamiliar with this last game, John. What, what is Cyclopean Cycle? Oh yeah, the Cyclopean Cycle. Here, let me uh, get to the description of it so that we can actually uh, take a moment to understand it. Okay, okay, so the Cyclopean Cycle is a cooperative steampunk deck-building worker placement legacy fantasy game rooted in the works of H.P. Lovecraft. The purpose of the game is 1 to 10 players have to pour through a huge instruction manual to accurately place eight different decks of cards, eight token types, ten character miniatures, and 70 pieces of currency onto a main playboard and individual character boards, and a third board called the Antediluvian Catamaran. The entire purpose of the game is to try to set the game up properly. The creator of the game said, much like life, my game is a journey. And also like life, my game is tedious, frustrating, confusing, and ultimately futile because it ends right when you understand how it works. Oh my god, that sounds so weird. And it's, it you know, it's actually so weird. I kind of want to play that. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, it's actually from the hard drive, which is a satire site like The Onion, but for games. But I bring it up because I don't understand why someone hasn't done this yet. I would totally play this game. I'm not even joking. Just thinking about it, it's, it's a crazy idea. I'd love to see someone actually pull this off and make a game where the whole point is setting up the game properly. That is weird and silly and actually kind of a great place to end this episode. Okay. I mean, we celebrated the weird and silly things that go on in board games and some really great and not so great games. Yeah, and actually it is a great place to end this episode because our next episode we're going to be talking about... The Game Crafter. It's a site where you can order parts to make your own game, and we might as well just talk about that. All right, so this has been our episode of Save vs. Rant. Thank you very much for listening. People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. The Doors. Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy with music by Timmy Skittles. New episodes are released on the first and third Monday of each month. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at saveversusrant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you. 